Would you turn your Bible to Romans, the sixth chapter? I feel impressed to just speak from this chapter tonight. I'd like to share some of the nuggets of gold that uh, I know we, spoke, we, we studied this in Sunday school today, but maybe if you're like our class, you didn't get through or you never get through Romans 6. That's one of the most magnanimous chapters in the entire Bible. And it uh, holds out so much promise to believers. Romans 6. Let's open our Bibles there and we'll be reading from the entire, that, that entire chapter. Got to get myself electrified. I forgot about this. All right. Now, just before we read from the Bible, let's pray together, please. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for all that You have done for us in Christ. All the songs tonight have reminded us of Thy, thy preciousness, Thy goodness, Thy love. We thank You for the power of Jesus' name. We thank You that when we yield to Thee to go where You want us to go and be what You want us to be, there's effectiveness and luster in our lives and joy. Tonight in this place, speak to every believer. And if there's one person here who has never been saved, may he come to Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans, the sixth chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Meganoito, God forbid. The strongest negative in the Greek language is used right there. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in its lusts. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are whom ye obey? Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that whereas ye were the servants of sin, 
ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things of which ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The book of Romans divides itself into two divisions. Chapters 1 through 11, salvation. Chapters 12 through 16, service. It's a very simple outline. You can memorize that right now. The first 12, 11 chapters deal with salvation. How do you get saved? What about the heathen? What about the Jews? All the wonderful doctrines of election and grace and sanctification. All of those in chapters 1 through 11. Chapter 12 begins, I beseech you therefore, that therefore refers to everything in chapters 1 to 11. On the basis of this, I beseech you, brethren, to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now the rest of chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 underscore the importance of service on the basis of what Jesus has done for us and what God's wonderful power has done for us in His elective sovereign grace revealed in chapters 1 through 11. Now if we outline on a closer way the book of Romans, we find that chapter 1 deals with the sins of the heathen world. Chapter 2 deals with the sins of the Jews who sinned against the very oracles of God. Chapter 3 concludes there is no difference between the heathen and the Jews, no difference between black and white, male and female, bond and free. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark and we've come short of what God expected because Jesus is God's standard. Now in chapter 4 and 5, we have the doctrine of salvation revealed. Chapter 4 gives an illustration of Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's how we're saved. Just by simple, childlike faith in what God said. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Somebody else said, God says it. That settles it whether I believe it or not. Because you see, what God says, he, he keeps. God who cannot lie is forever true. And so in chapter 4, we have just simply the unveiling of the truth that we're saved and justified by grace through faith. Nothing added, nothing subtracted. We're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, we're glorified by grace. Paul sums that up in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. It's all in the past tense because in Christ it's all already complete. That's the reason a saved person can never be lost. If a saved person could be lost, then Romans 8.30 is a lie. Because it says, whom he foreknew, he predestinated, whom he predestinated, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified past tense. It's already past. It's already completed in Christ. And so our salvation depends upon him. Now in chapter 5, Paul magnifies the grace of God. And the theme of chapter 5 is this, Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God allowed this, uh, where, Romans 5.20 begins, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. In other words, the law was given so we could see how exceedingly sinful sin is. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. The law was given so we would know how terrible sin is. But in the face of the awful tyranny of sin, as awful as it is, grace abounds because we're saved by grace through faith. Now it's as if Paul was out preaching this and a Baptist committee gets together and comes to see him. And they say, Brother Paul, we like what you preached. Sounds pretty good, but we have two questions, just two. Number one, Shall we continue in sin because grace abounds? Because we're saved by grace? Shall we just keep on in this old house of sin, this old nature of sin, just amplify it and magnify it? The second question is found in verse 15. Look in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin, individual sins, because we're not under the law but under grace? Now those are the two questions they came and brought Paul, and that's what what chapter 6 centers around. Those two questions. Number one, shall we continue in the old house of sinful nature? And number two, shall we practice individual sins? Because after all, Brother Paul, you've taught that we're saved by grace. It doesn't make any difference how we live. We're going to heaven anyway. So what shall we do about it? Now, Paul uses the strongest negative in the Greek language in both cases. He says, God forbid. God forbid. Perish the thought. Meganoito. Tell it not in Gath, to borrow an Old Testament term. He says, this should never be considered. And then he gives these reasons. Number one, the believer is dead to sin, verses 1 to 10. Number two, the believer has new privileges as a child of the king, verses 11 to 14. Number three, the believer has a new master, verses 15 through 23. Now, Christ's death paid the full penalty of our sin. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 tell us about that. Chapters four, uh, six, 6, 7, and 8 remind us that Christ's death made possible a new victory in our lives. Friend, before you're saved, your nature is to sin. After you're saved, you have a new nature that doesn't want to sin. And that's where the conflict comes. Before you're saved, there's no conflict. You just do what comes naturally. The world lies and hates and cheats, commits adultery, drinks, snorts, just lives it up. They have lotteries. 
They give drunken parties. They have husband and wife swapping situations and so on because that's the way the world lives. They don't think anything about it. They don't have many conflicts in their hearts. But when you become a Christian and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, you have a new nature. And that new nature begins to disturb you when you sin. He hurts your heart. He bothers you. That new nature is the Holy Spirit of God. Now notice in verses 1 to 10, the believer is dead to sin. Our baptism pictures that. Every time a person goes into that baptismal pool, or they go down into the water to be baptized, you'll notice what the Bible says about baptism. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even so what? We should walk a new life. We should walk in newness of life. Now our baptism pictures that we have died to an old life. We have been buried to that old nature. The old things are past. I like the song. There's been a great change since I've been born again. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to love, I don't love them anymore. The things I used to be, I'm not that anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. The Holy Spirit has come into my life and has changed me. Now, a believer, the believer is crucified with Christ. Look in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. The believer was crucified with Christ retroactively. We go back to Calvary when we get saved, and we go through what Christ did on the cross. We identify with him. We die with him. And this is an identity in which that person who takes upon himself the Savior, receives Christ as his Savior, he is crucified with Christ. This is the reason Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the believer has a new nature, new desires. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new if we're in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ constraineth me. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, we're, com- com- we're constrained by the Spirit to do all things without murmurings and complainings that we might manifest this new life that is in Christ. Now the old nature is there, but that old nature has been dethroned and Christ has been enthroned. And we have a new person, a new person to whom we're responsible. Now, the new Christian has the same power over the old nature that we have over a radio. Now here's a radio. I have power over this radio. You don't hear a thing. Do you hear anything? No. Don't hear a thing. But it's there. All this is out here in the airwaves. And I have power over that radio. All I have to do is do like that.
And see, you hear all that stuff? And I can change to another station. See? But I also have power to turn it off. I have power over it. That doesn't have power over me unless I let it. Right? I can let it. I can get so glued and so hung up on this thing that it has power over me and I can't bring myself to turn it off. But I don't have to be like that because by nature I have power over this. Now it's a very simple human illustration that says you and I have power over sin. We have power over that old nature that's within us. We do not have to go on doing the same old things. Because when Christ came into our life, He gave us a new nature. He gave us a new set of desires. He gave us a new motivation. He gave us, He made us new. All things are new. I don't have to go on living the old way. But I can go on living the old way. I can get hung up on it. I can get so involved in it that I develop an affinity for it and I begin to feed that old nature on trash and filth and old um, um, trashy magazines and old movies, films and, and uh, uh, picture shows and television shows that, are, uh, that, have, that appeal to the base nature. And I can get so caught up in that that I forget that I've got a new nature. And boy, I get mad at anybody that tells me about my new nature. And some preacher comes along and talks about sin and its penalty. And a young, young, some young guy will stand up and he'll say, now look, there's nothing wrong with this. Nothing wrong with this. Nothing wrong. Everybody's doing it. You ever heard that? Everybody's doing it. Why, you old square, you old-fashioned pig, there's nothing wrong with what, we're, what I'm doing. Everybody's doing it. Sure, they're all doing it because that's the way the world lives. The whole world lives by the old nature. But when you give your heart to Jesus Christ, you have a new nature. And the things you used to like to do, Christ wants to give you overcoming power over those things. And you don't have to go on doing them anymore. You have power over them. Now this is spoken of in beginning in verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in its lusts. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You don't have to go on sinning. That's the wonderful hope of the believer. Now you can. <laughs> you can go on living like the devil. You can go on live it up. You can go on and dance your night away. You can go on and listen to your rock music that creates and motivates inside of you a worldly attitude and a worldly disposition that begins to hanker after the things of the world, you can do that. Or God gives you the power to turn it off and to say, I'm not gonna be brought under those things. 
You can go on puffing away at your cigarettes. But God says, I'll give you the power to lay them down. You can go on drinking your beer and your whiskey. Things that hurt your body. Things that loose the tissues of your brain and the, the uh, areas of your brain and loose those inhibitions and cause you to say and do things that you would never do in your right mind. You can go on doing that. But Christ gives you the power over that. You don't have to do it. You can go on cussing and swearing. And you can get so mad you have a temper. Just get so mad. You know, you can do that. Or you can ask the Holy Spirit to control your temper. And give you spiritual power over it. You see, you have a new nature. And the devil doesn't like this. He doesn't even like this sermon. He doesn't like that chapter. You see, he hates for a person to get saved, but what he hates more is for a saved person to get the upper hand over the old nature. He doesn't like that at all. He wants you to live under the circumstances. He wants you to live a defeated, dwarfed, little, bitty, crippled life. He hates when God's people take strong stands against sin. And so, he arranges it so that a lot of Christians don't take any stands. And when some old-fashioned preacher takes a stand against sin or stand on a certain issue, some disgruntled member can say, well, I'll go down to the church down the street. They don't say anything about that. That's just your opinion, preacher. That's just your old idea, see? But Jesus says, Neither yield your members as instruments unto sin. Now this is the nitty-gritty. This is down where the water hits the wheel and the rubber hits the road. This is down where we live. In this room tonight, in our lives, there's a terrible battle going. And if you'd be honest, you'd admit it. I'm not going to ask for people to stand up and tell, give testimonies, but you know there's a battle going. There's that old nature that, that is appealing to get the upper hand. And every once in a while it does. And boy, these old, those old words slip out. Those old thoughts slip out. That old lust comes out. That old sin comes out. But if you're really saved, that's where the test of your salvation comes. Because if that, when that happens... It disturbs you. It bothers your new nature. It hurts you. It bothers you deep down inside. It makes you miserable. Now, there are two reactions. It can send you into depression and you start living under the feelings. Living by feelings. Boy, I feel good today. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Tomorrow, oh, terrible. I'm not going to church. I'd be a hypocrite if I went to church. I'm not going. I'm not going over there. I'm not going soul winning. I just don't feel like it. You see, you live by feelings. That's exactly what the devil wants you to do. Christ provides victory. But when we start living under the circumstances and living by the old nature and living by those old desires, instead of having any victory, 
we have just defeat after defeat after defeat. And that's sad. One of the saddest experiences I had, I have from time to time, have had, is to stand by a casket of a Christian who lived a defeated life. Tragic. I've known some. One reason we ought to let the new nature get the upper hand and feed the new nature is because we never know any moment when we're going to die. Beloved, it would be a terrible thing to live this life, leave this life, and leave behind you the awful memory for the ones that love you the most that you just lived a defeated life. You didn't have any victory. Now, I'm not downing anybody. I'm not trying to get you when you're down and you squeeze you and put you under the thumb and say, ha, 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 ha. That's what the devil does to you. The rest of the story tonight, as Paul Harvey would say, is that Christ gives you victory. You don't have to live like that. Look beginning in verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we continue to commit sins, individual sins? Shall we sin, little isolated sins, because we're not under the law, but under grace? Megan Oiko, God forbid, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? That's a wonderful verse to me. You listen to that. Believer has a new master. The term for servant there is doulos. This is the Greek word for servant, the most object, servile term for a slave. Formerly a slave of Satan, when you receive Jesus, you are now a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. This has several meanings. Number one, you're born into a condition of slavery. When you first get here, you're a slave. As soon as you know that right from wrong and you choose wrong, you're a slave of the devil. Only a radical change in your life can, be, can help you become a servant of Jesus. That's the reason we have to be converted. That's the reason we have to be born again. That's the reason we have to be saved. If you're here tonight and you've never been born again, you may have joined a church, you may have been baptized, but you've never been born again, you're still a servant of the devil. There are servants of the devil who are members of churches. But when Jesus Christ comes into your life and you yield yourself to Him and He changes you, He gives you a new nature, then you become a servant of Christ. There's no neutral ground. You're either a servant of Satan or a servant of the Savior. Which shall it be? That's what verse 16 is about. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are. Whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, for the wages of sin is death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But look at verse 17. But God be thanked that whereas ye were the servants of sin, ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine
righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What an argument. He says, when you, were, when you were a child of the devil, when you were living for the devil, you were free from righteousness. But when you became a servant of God, you became free from sin. Now, what does that mean? It means before you're saved, you're free from that, that appeal to your heart of righteousness. So that you don't see anything wrong with this. After all, that's one of the basic problems of humanism. It deifies man, and it says there's nothing really wrong with anything. It's all relative. It all depends on the circumstance. It all depends on the situation. Because he has no, he, he's, a, he's a doulos of the world, of, the, of, the, of Satan. He's a servant of Satan. But when you get converted, and you get saved, Jesus Christ comes into your life, you become a servant of righteousness. And you're dead to sin. And when you go back into sin, there's a conflict. There's a terrible problem. And that problem either leads you to depression or discouragement or despair or it leads you to repentance. And you turn away from it and you turn back to Christ. You cannot serve God and mammon. No man can serve two masters. He'll either love the one and despise the other or you'll cling to one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and the world. You cannot serve God and the flesh. You cannot serve God and the Satan. And there's glorious liberty in Jesus. Once I was bound by sin's galling fetters, chained like a slave, I struggled in vain. But I received a glorious freedom when Jesus broke those fetters in twain. Glorious freedom, glorious freedom. Do you have that glorious freedom? It's your birthright. The question is, are you living up to those privileges? You've heard this story lots of times. I like to tell it again. A little boy worked and worked all morning to catch a little sparrow. And finally he got that sparrow and he held it in his hand. Boy, he had it. <clears throat> he was walking down the street. And a man came along and said, what you got there, Sonny? He said, well, I've got a little bird. Where'd you get it? Well, I caught it. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to take it home, keep it. And the man said, but, but Sonny, that bird needs freedom. He was born to fly. He's born to free. And the boy said, well, I'm not going to let him go. I took him all morning to catch him. I'm going to keep him. And the man wisely thought for a minute, and he reached in his pocket and got some money out. And he said, uh, he said, Sonny, would you sell that bird to me? And he put the money out. And the boy looked at the money, and he looked at his bird, and he said, it's a deal. And the man gave him the money, and the boy gave the man the bird. And the man held the little bird up in his hand, and that little sparrow was all squashed over in his his uh, wings were all down and droopy, and, and the man just held him out there, and the bird didn't know he was free. And the man said, fly away, birdie, fly away, you're free. And the bird just sat there, and then that man touched him on the back of the feathers, and the bird stretched his wings and flew away. Now that's the way you are. You've been bought with a great price, the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been bought with the blood of Jesus. We're free in Christ. We have a glorious freedom. You're not under sin. 
you're under grace. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto Christ as those that are alive from the dead. For sin shall no longer have power, dominion over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. The question in two parts. Number one, are you sure you're under grace? Are you still under the old law of sin? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you positive beyond the shadow of a doubt? Can you remember the day when you were freed from sin and its wages? And you can say with all your heart, I'm God's child and I'm thankful. Do you remember that? If you can't remember that date, I don't mean the day on the calendar, but if you can't remember the experience, then tonight turn to Jesus and let Christ come in. Number two, if you can remember being born again, you know you're God's child, are you living up to the privileges of a child of God? Are you having some victory in your life? Or is it just one defeat after another? Just one depression after another? One misery after another? One crutch after another? One wheelchair after another? You're just droopy and discouraged and defeated all the time. The convictionless, compromising, purposeless Christian is in bondage all the time. But there's glorious freedom for you. There's a liberty. It's not something that I say. It's not in a fellowship. It's not in some kind of excitement. It's not in some kind of a song. It's all in Jesus. And when you put your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, the things of earth, will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Where do you want to live? What kind of life do you want? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this glorious sixth chapter of Romans. The foundation for our understanding of sanctification. We pray Thou wilt help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And may every person here in this room tonight determined with all of his heart to serve you, to love you, to live for you, to honor you. And Father, we pray that if there's one person here who is not sure he's saved, may this be God's glorious night of victory. We just ask you that folks might be saved and come to Jesus tonight. And others will be freed from the tyranny of defeat and enter into a new glorious liberty in Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Will you stand, please? That song is appropriate tonight. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come to thee. What number is that? 242. Let's sing that. Number 242. Sing it from your heart. Sing it big tonight. Make it a, if it's true in your life, just make it a praise. Out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I have come to thee. If it's not true in your life, make it true tonight. It may mean you need to come and say, I, I've never really been saved. If I died tonight, I wouldn't go to heaven. It may mean you're saved, but you're not experiencing any victory. Why not tonight settle that and say, I'm going to start a new road of victory in my life. Victory in Jesus for His glory. While we sing, 
who will step out first for the king? Will you come?